0: Well, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, we'll be looking today at verses 13 to 31. Now this portion of uh, in Mark's gospel account has some very familiar stories uh, that that you've heard before, and I will tell you each story deserves a lesson on its own, Uh, we will Only hit the high points, but I think the the main points of, of each one we'll cover. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the entrance to the kingdom easy or hard? Well, in a sense, it's both, right? It's both in the sense that there's nothing we do to earn it. We simply embrace it by faith. Christ has done the work. But it's also hard in the sense that we have to count the cost. There are idols of the heart, things that we have to turn from and let go of in order to turn and embrace Christ. And in that sense, it's hard. Well, we will see both of these in, in the, the stories, the, um, in the, the, the Scripture that we'll look at today. Now, as Eric reminded us last week, Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem. He has crossed over the Jordan River. He's now in the area of Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan. He is going to come down, come to Jericho, head over to Jerusalem. We are days away from the triumphal entry and the Passion Week. Uh, so, with, you know, within a week and a half or something like that, Jesus will will be dying on the cross. So that that's kind of, in terms of timing, this is where we are. He has been staying at a house in the preceding verses, and perhaps he and, and the disciples are preparing to leave the town soon for the next leg of their journey. And we come to a story where Jesus blesses the little children. You've heard this before. Beginning in verse 13, we see where parents brought their children to Jesus so that he would bless them. Verse 13 of chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. Now, Luke and Luke's, uh, parallel account <clears throat> he says they were bringing even their babies to him babies meaning unweaned children focusing on really the fact that these were mostly perhaps all very young children and then it says here in in mark that that Jesus might touch them that was the purpose well if we look at matthew's account Matthew says, so that he might lay his hands on them and what? And pray. That's the point. He didn't bring, they weren't bringing the children so that Jesus would touch them to, to heal them. But the whole context here is these parents were bringing these little children so that Jesus would lay his hands on them, pray and and bless them. MacArthur writes that Jewish parents commonly sought the blessing of prominent rabbis for their children. And the laying on of hands was an outward symbol of blessing them. This custom goes back all the way to the patriarchs, even to Noah in, in Scripture. These parents were asking Jesus to spiritually bless the lives of these little ones. And especially, I think, in the context of what Jesus was teaching well the, the disciples disapproved of this and saw it as inappropriate continuing in verse 13 but the disciples what rebuked them it would seem that uh, the disciples directed the strong disapproval to the parents for bringing their children forward the, the disciples are saying stop doing this. Well, uh, in his excellent exposition on the, go- the gospel of Matthew, Tom Pennington, perhaps you know of him, he noted some of the following uh, possible reasons why. He said, you know, why would the disciples have done this? Well, one, to protect Jesus, thinking that he, he's already busy enough. Right? So the disciples are thinking, we've got to have the back of Jesus. We've got to protect him and, and so on. Also, they were reflecting the view of the culture that children were a waste of a good teacher's time. They thought that, thought that Jesus' time was too valuable for it to be spent on those who really offered so little. Infanticide, in other words, the killing of children, was widely practiced in Greek culture during this time. At, even at this time, it was legal in Roman culture. And although it was illegal in Jewish culture, children still had a low, a low status. Think of our own culture today. For many, a child in the womb is not a person. It's just tissue that can be discarded at the discretion of the mother. And, and that, that is true for so many people, many, many people in our country and around the world. A child, for many, is no more valuable than an animal. Even after they're born, for some. And even many who would find value in the life of a child Uh, they still carry the attitude that careers, possessions, and hobbies are a more worthy and rewarding investment of time and energy than that of children. And that's reflected in their lifestyle. Children should not interfere with the pursuit and interest of adults. That even though they value the lives of children, they see other things in life as, as really more important than children. Jesus is about to correct their, the wrong view and attitude of the, the disciples toward children. Look at Jesus' response in verse 14. We, we're going to see where he was angry at the disciples for their wrong attitudes concerning children and commanded that they be allowed to come. Verse 14, But when Jesus saw this, He was indignant. Indignant. uh, It's it's strongly expressed emotion. It's something that comes on the face. You, You know this when you've looked at someone and their facial expression gets distorted and it's it's clear they are upset. That's the idea. This this was visibly evident on Jesus. Who is he angry with? The children? No. The parents? No. But with the disciples. He was angry because of the attitude that they had toward children that reflected the culture and not not him and his kingdom principles. Disciples of Christ are supposed to represent him and his values. And Jesus valued children And he's angry with those who don't. Folks, imagine how the Lord would react today to the mistreatment, the neglect, and the abuse and killing of children. We certainly acknowledge the the grace and complete forgiveness from Christ to those who have been guilty of such sins, And who have sought forgiveness in Christ. Those those things are cleansed through Christ. But at the same time, we must acknowledge that Jesus is angry. And we acknowledge the pending judgment on the unrepentant who practice such things toward children. Continuing in verse 14, And Jesus said to to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. That word hinder, it means... Uh, it, it's an ongoing present tense. So it, it's continual. He's saying, in essence, don't ever keep them from coming to me again. Jesus said to them that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Continuing in verse 14, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive or accept the kingdom of God like a child, will not enter it at all. Notice that strange translation, will not at all. The translators are trying to reflect the double negative in the original Greek here. And basically, he's saying in our vernacular, there's no way. There's absolutely no way that um, they can come into the kingdom unless they come like a child. Now, there's additional discussion on this passage about when children can be saved and do they go to heaven if they die before they reach a condition of accountability. Uh, Covering this is beyond the time available that we have and the scope of our text. But in short, scripture does give evidence that those who die before they reach a point where they can, they can mentally and morally understand the guilt of their sin and understand the offer of grace and uh, an understanding of what Christ has done for them, that before they reach that point, uh, they, they would go to heaven if they die. This passage, while it doesn't prove that point, it certainly allows for it. Think about it. Jesus says the kingdom of God is composed of some such as these. In other words, there are those who die in the state of these little children Uh, very young, very young children being carried by these parents who die in that state. They enter into God's presence, into eternity in that state. Doesn't mean they perpetually stay as children in heaven, but it's in that state that they come into the kingdom. Secondly, when Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these, I think he's highlighting a key similarity between these young children and all who come to embrace the gospel. There's characteristics of these children common to even adults that would come into the kingdom. What is that? Well, the similarity is the basis of how one is received into the kingdom. Just as children are, are what? They're helpless. They're dependent. They have not earned merit before God. They they come offering nothing of merit. So all must come to Christ in the same manner, in that manner of faith, simple faith and trust. We contribute nothing. We are all recipients of pure grace. And that, I think, is what Christ is getting to here. All come into the kingdom just like little children. We offer and contribute absolutely nothing. Well, next, Jesus embraced these young children in his arms and blessed them. Verse 16, and he took them in his arms and began blessing them Laying his hands on them. I love this. Jesus took them in his arms. It's not like, you know, some people who are not really comfortable around kids, they might put their hand on the head of a kid and just say, yeah, nice little boy, nice," and just kind of keep them at arm's distance and move on. That's not Jesus. Jesus took them in his arms. And that means in, in the crook, in the bend of your arm, which means he knelt down and picked them up or he took them from the arms of a parent and he is face to face with them, looking them in the eye, touching their nose or whatever. I mean, he is loving on these children. That's the picture. And he touches them and he blesses them. He prayed a blessing on them. To bless means to pray that that God would do what is spiritually good and beneficial in the life of that child. We're not given the details or the specifics of what Jesus prayed for these children, but we, we sure see his tender love and care and concern for them. Don't, don't you see that in that? Can't you just picture that? Jesus loved the little children, just like we we sing that song well there are some reflections to think about on this first of all jesus was indignant at the mistreatment of children and so must we so must we be we must hate and stand against the various attitudes and actions that that minimize the importance, the worth, the value of children. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to have the attitude that that your Lord had toward children. You need to love children. And when people look at you, it needs to be evident that you're a person who loves children. Secondly, Jesus loves the little children, so must we. In the ministries of our church, in our homes, in our individual lives, we must love and value children and bless them just as Jesus did. That they are important and worthy of our time and investment. I love the ministries of our church. Don't we have a wonderful children's program? When you think about Sunday school and how these kids are taught early on, the Bible is true. Those simple truths that they are taught early on to memorize Scripture. My five-year-old granddaughter uh, quoted an entire psalm on our uh, vacation. Not just a small psalm. I, I think it was Psalm 46. I mean, it was long. With all the hand motions and animations. And she learned it here. From a teacher that has taught young children for a long time. To, to love and value God's word. So our, we need people who serve and love on children. In the context of the ministries in our church. What happens in our homes needs to reflect. That children are worthy of the investment of our time and energies. Thirdly, Jesus come into, the, come into the kingdom humble, trusting, and with nothing to offer. And so must we. If you are not in Christ, can I just remind you, you have nothing to offer before God. You are not a good person. And you don't come before Him with any merit at all. Merit inherent just in being human or merit that you have earned thinking you have done good things. You come before God on the basis of grace alone. Christ has done it all. And you must come as a child with simple faith, trusting in Him. Faith and humility with a submissive heart, a repentant heart, Recognizing your sin and with a heart that is eager to turn from your sin and turn and follow your master. That's what a real disciple looks like. That's the only way anyone comes into the kingdom like a child. Jesus loves the little children. The next part of our text is the rich young ruler. And that's the bulk of the section in chapter 10 that we'll look at today. Now this is a fam- familiar story, one that looks at idols of the heart and the nature of genuine repentance before anyone can follow Christ. So we see that this this man ran up to Jesus, he knelt down, and he asked him a question. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, or as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. So imagine this this scene where Jesus, you know, the, the parents have brought the kids and Jesus spends time with them. He's now getting ready to go on the next leg of the journey. He's about to leave this little town and This man runs up to ask Jesus a question. Who is this man? Well, it says here that, well, he was a man. And later in Mark's account, it says he was one who owned much property. Now, Luke's parallel account says he was extremely rich. Matthew's parallel account says he was a young man. And Luke's account also says that he was a ruler. (laughs) So you put all of the parallel accounts together, he was the what? Rich, young, ruler. It's not stated like that in any account, but you put them all together, it adds up to the rich, young ruler. And that's how we know of this particular story. Now this man was a, a lay leader likely in the synagogue. He's probably unmarried. He is an outstanding citizen. He was well regarded. He, he would have had a, a high standing locally. He was uh, one everyone wanted to emulate and thought he had a high reputation, the kind of person everyone would want to be like. And it says he ran up to him well, that's not normally what someone of reputation does. Uh, you, you walk kind of in a dignified manner. But he, he ran up. Jesus is about to leave town, and he recognizes that. He, he really wants to get there in time. He runs up. He does what? He gets down on his knees before Jesus. That's a sign of respect respect of what Jesus taught and respect of who he was. That's all good. I mean, can't you imagine what the disciples are thinking? Okay, this 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 is all good. Here here goes a this'll be a great convert right here. This this is a this'll be so good for the kingdom to have this kind of person come in. Well look at his question. He says And this man that ran up, he asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew's account says, What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now this seems like a good question from from a man with really a remarkable resume Tom in his uh, exposition on this account account brings up some points about this guy's resume think about it he is genuinely and deeply interested in spiritual matters this is a spiritual man and we'll see that we'll see much of this unfold as we go through the story he's also a believer in the one true God I mean he he believes in God he he loves God. Everything about his life is, it looks externally as if he does. He has respect and this emotional response to Jesus and his teaching. He's, he's excited about Jesus and being in front of him, kneels down before him. He possesses a desire for the assurance of eternal life. Like, Lord, tell me, is there something else missing? Another box that I need to check in my life to have eternal life. He has an understanding of God's law. Again, as we'll see in the, the following verses, he has this external conformity to it and he demonstrates a life of self discipline, a, a life of self, you know, that's respectable. He's, he has a high um, regard for the, from the people. But of course, the Lord knew the man's heart. And we we can see right off the bat from his question, the first issue. And what is that? He thought it was within his ability to do good, to be good enough to receive eternal life. He says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He believed in his own ability to be righteous and to be justified before God. He was sincere, but sincerely wrong in being engulfed in the legalism of Jewish culture. You see, the, the Jewish people at this time had developed what is known as retribution theology. One, one's possessions, one's wealth, were a sign of God's approval and blessing. Or if things were going bad for you in life, that was a sign of God's judgment. Everyone, including this man, thought he was approved by God. Or certainly close to being approved by God. And he wants to know, is there, is there anything I've left out that I need to do to just really make sure I'm right before God? Well, Jesus corrected his wrong view, the, the wrong view of, the, of this man and his sinfulness. Verse 18, And Jesus said to them, to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There's two points here in Jesus' response. First of all, no, no human being, and the, the idea is no sinful human being, is good. It doesn't mean people cannot do good things. Even unsaved people can do good things. Do you understand that? I mean even even atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Mormons, whatever, they can do good things from a human standpoint. And why is that? Because they're made in the image of God. And there's the residual image of God in them that's re- that can be reflected in various things that, that they do. They can be merciful. They can be forgiving, do, do helpful things and so on, do kind things. We understand that. That's a reflection of the residual image of God within them. But it, it, those things are good from a, a human standpoint. But from God's perspective, no unsaved person can do anything from perfect God-honoring motives. So from God's perspective, they're not good. Think about it. Remember Isaiah 64, 6? This says it all. And all our righteous deeds from a human standpoint are like what? A filthy garment from God's standpoint. Everything we do that that we think is good, even though there might be some you know good some value in it from a human standpoint, an earthly standpoint, God looks at the heart and there is nothing that we do that in his eyes are really good for those who are unsaved. That's part of what God or Jesus is saying here. Secondly, He's saying that God alone is good. Jesus is not saying that he doesn't deserve to be called good. Scripture shows Jesus to be without sin. I mean, he's perfect. He is good. He is our good shepherd. Nor is Jesus implying that he's not God. He affirmed his deity elsewhere in Scripture. MacArthur writes, Jesus challenged the ruler to think through the implications of ascribing to him the title good. Jesus is saying, look, why are you calling me good? MacArthur adds, since only God is intrinsically good, was he prepared to acknowledge Jesus's deity? Jesus is saying this to challenge the thinking of the man. Why are you calling me good? Do you acknowledge the fact that I I am divine? Next, Jesus corrected his wrong view of obtaining eternal life and, and invites this man to follow him. Verse 19, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. By the way, do not defraud, that's not one of the 10 commandments. This is likely just a paraphrase of do not the command to not covet. So playing to the man's presuppositions that he thought he could be good enough, Jesus is is just playing kind of along with those presuppositions. Okay, let's test that out about what what you think. You think that you're good enough, that you're earning this. So he's He's going through the law. First, we know that a person cannot be saved by keeping the Old Testament law. And in particular, in particular the moral law of the Ten Commandments that reflect the unchanging the commandments tied to the character of God, which never, never change. The New Testament tells us that The purpose of the law has always been to make us aware of our sinfulness and need for God's unmerited grace. Think about it, Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By by fulfilling the commandments of the Old Testament, the New Testament clearly says no one will be declared righteous And acceptable before God. For through the law. Comes the knowledge. Of sin. The purpose of the law. Is to humble us. In a sense condemn us. uh, Of our guilt. And our need for grace. And a substitute. A redeemer. One who. Will bear that punishment. On our our behalf. Jesus is using the law here in an attempt to awaken the man's conscience, to make him feel the weight of his sin. But look at the man's reply. The man replied that he had kept these things from his youth up, verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. The man obviously had a Skewed understanding of himself and the commandments. No one has perfectly kept the law and the commandments. Jesus tried to force him to see his need for grace. He may have kept these things externally, but clearly not perfectly in terms of inward attitudes and thoughts. The man's response is superficial. Jesus, you remember, explained in the Sermon on the Mount that the law goes beyond seeing things as merely external deeds, but also it applies to attitudes of the heart. This man feels like he's missing something, and if he had it, he, he, just, he can do it and check a box, but Jesus knows what is really going on in the man's heart we see now that Jesus lovingly told him to sell all his possessions for the poor and come and follow him. Look at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. That word looking, it's gazing intently. I mean, Jesus is piercing into the man's eyes. And it's not a, A condemning kind of pierce. It's what? It's a loving pierce. And I I love this image. Jesus felt a love for this man. And this man is an unbeliever. He's not a disciple. Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that you can't just love those who love you. Jesus is our perfect example of loving those who don't love you back. Yes, God loves the elect. We know this with a special kind of saving love. But the Bible clearly reveals that God loves all people. And we we can't deny that. This is a classic text. Jesus loves even unbelievers. It goes on in verse 21. And Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The man would have been utterly shocked at this statement and demand by Jesus. Can you imagine the look on his face when Jesus said this? Even rabbis of the day would have not demanded this. This would would have been a foreign idea. In fact, the rabbis would have considered it unlawful to just sell everything you have and give it to the poor. This is not a universal requirement of the gospel. That's not what Jesus is teaching. If you want to come to Christ, Everyone must go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor. That's not his point. And we know that looking at all of Scripture. There are other wealthy individuals in the New Testament who came and followed Christ. They didn't sell all that they possessed and give it away. I mean, think about it. We are meeting here in South Lake, Texas. We are all wealthy people by the standards of the world. We're, we're not required to go sell everything and give to the poor. But scripture clearly teaches and tells us to not be boastful about what we possess or place our hope in material things. But we are to be generous with what we have. 1 Timothy 6. So what, what Christ is telling this man here This is a call for true repentance. Jesus taught since the beginning of his ministry about repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Here he's instructing this wealthy young man about true repentance, what it looks like and what it looks like for him specifically. Jesus knew that this man's wealth had become an idol. It's what he worshipped. And was he willing to forsake it in order to embrace Christ? Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that you can't serve two, what? Masters. You you will either love one and hate the other. Secondly, Jesus here, it's a call to follow Christ as Lord. Jesus said, come. Come. Follow me. This implies trusting Jesus as Savior as well as submitting to him as Lord. He tells the man, give up what you really love and and I know what it is and I want you to come and follow me. Well, sadly, the man rejected Jesus' instruction and offer and he walked away grieving. Verse 22, but at these words, He was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He got up off his knees, grieving, and walked away, and essentially said, no thanks. Jesus showed the man the depravity of his own heart. He came thinking that he could be good enough, but Jesus exposed This idolatry in his heart. He wasn't willing to give up this idol to submit to Christ as Lord. Those who don't come to Christ have other idols that they worship, that they value, that they cherish, that they cling to even, in some cases as a way of thinking that will earn my way into heaven. That's another type of idol. But things they're unwilling to, To give up in order to follow Christ. Well Jesus had some. Follow up teaching. To give to the disciples. So the man has walked away. And now just the disciples are there. Verse 23 and Jesus. Looking around said to the disciples. To his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy. To enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's hard for most wealthy people to be saved. Jesus is not saying or he is saying that that wealth is an idol that is hard for most to let go of, to follow Christ, because wealth. It's a classic thing. It, It appeals to the flesh. It appeals to the pride of life and thinking that that things the the. Uh, the respect or the benefit of material things are a source of happiness and elevation in our state of life. And for some it's, it's an outward of what we think is God's blessing. And it, it makes us think that we're good, that we, we are blessed of God and it, it breeds arrogance. Christ is saying it's hard for wealthy people to be saved. well, the disciples were then shocked at what Jesus said because a man like this seems to have all the right credentials. Verse 24 The disciples were amazed at this. Again, wealth was viewed as a sign of God's favor. I mean, this guy is like the cream of the crop, he has everything going for him. And The disciples are just blown away that he's being rejected. And he he can't enter the kingdom. Jesus then reiterated his point, but with broader application, continuing in verse 24. But Jesus answered again to the disciples and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. The point is, everyone has idols. Not only rich people, but even poor people. John Calvin has that classic thing that he said, the human heart is a what? Perpetual idol factory. We're always coming up with things in life to worship and direct the affections of our heart toward. And it's, it's in that context, Jesus is saying it's, It's hard to enter the kingdom because people have to let go of their idols as part of repentance, turning from these things to embrace and follow Christ. Giving up idols like wealth to follow Christ is not humanly possible. Verse 25, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've all heard the interpretation that it refers to this small gate, you know, in Jerusalem that you have to, you have to kneel down and get rid of, of all these excess things in order to pass through the gate. And we've heard, you know, elaborate stories in that context. But that kind of interpretation didn't come around until like 800 years after Christ. There's no such gate. Okay, so that, that story just really doesn't hit the mark here this simply was a common proverb that that people understood at the time regarding the impossibility of things and people would say you know well it's harder to, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than whatever people understood that meaning and it's it's saying just like it's impossible for the largest animal that they knew a huge camel to go through the smallest hole that they knew, the eye of a needle. Everyone understood that analogy. And Jesus uses that proverb to say it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that if you think that's Impossible for those things to happen. It's even more impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom, humanly speaking. Verse 26. They were even more astonished. The idea they were blown away at him saying this. And they said to, to him, Then who can be saved? Verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it, in other words, salvation is impossible, but with God all things are are all things are possible. It's impossible, humanly speaking. But all things are possible with God through the Holy Spirit and, and his work. Jesus says that only God can bring about the change of heart that that brings any man, including the wealthy, regardless of what one's idols are, the things that you worship deep in your heart and soul. Only God can bring about true faith and repentance. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that, that comes and does a work of regenerating the heart making a a person born again to even have the capacity to have faith and to turn let go of the idols and embrace Christ only God can save any of us and certainly we know here at countryside we see it in all of scripture from beginning to end God owns and is responsible for all parts of salvation he, he gets all of the credit. We earn and do nothing. Well, there's some points to reflect on here. First of all, not everyone who seems to be spiritual is embraced by God. This man refused to embrace Christ as Lord. He was spiritual. He had a high regard, high reputation. But he was a rebel at heart and and Jesus put his finger on that. Don't be fooled when you see spiritual people, not, not everyone who appears spiritual on the outside truly is a child of God and is repentant and has a right standing before God in reality. Secondly, human credentials can be misleading. True faith and genuine repentance are required to embrace Christ. There's nothing we offer, nothing we bring to the cross. It's only by grace, only what Christ did on our behalf. There's no good thing that we can do to obtain eternal life. Thirdly, idolatry is and always has been a barrier to embracing Christ as Lord. If you are not in Christ, what? do you most love in this life that hinders you from following Christ? You have idols in your heart that you truly think are going to bring you hope and happiness, perhaps even a right standing before God. You need to let go of those idols and like a child, turn and embrace Christ and all that He has done to make you right before God. You can't serve God and anything else. Next, only the spirit can change and regenerate the unsaved heart. And finally, Jesus didn't obscure the demands of the gospel. Neither should we. Jesus didn't just welcome this guy. He, he externally did all good things, had high reputation, seemed spiritual believed in God the Father, came down, ran to him, got on his knees, and Jesus didn't make it easy to say, you're my disciple. He he said hard things and was honest with the guy to say, "What, what are the real demands? What's the high cost in order to embrace me, embrace Christ? Likewise, we don't need to obscure the gospel. We need to be honest with the demands to follow Christ. Well, the final section here is the first last and the last first. In other words, the first shall be last and the the last first. From verse 28 to 31, Peter posed a question to Jesus about the benefits for having left everything to follow him. So Jesus is, remember, he's just said all this about this rich young ruler. And, you know, he, the lesson is he wasn't willing to leave his idol. And Peter thought about this. And Peter began to say to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. Now, that sounds like a statement. But if you look at Matthew's parallel account. Peter also added a question. He says, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Like, Lord, you know, this guy clearly didn't leave his riches, but. Lord, we as your disciples, we've left everything. What will there be for us? Kind of what's what's the benefit for us? we answered your call to leave everything and the disciples did that that were following him what are the benefits to us it it's taken here as a legitimate question because in what follows Jesus doesn't condemn the question and if it was a, an invalid question Jesus would let that be known he's done it with peter well look at Jesus's response First of all, he says the benefits of following him far surpass the personal cost. Verse 29, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake. In other words, on account of me or for the gospel's sake. In other words, on account of the gospel. But that he will receive a hundred times as much in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Following Christ means, I mean, think about it. What do you give up as a child of God? We deny ourselves. We deny the things that we once loved. We take up our cross. We follow Him. We learn to obey and grow and in, uh, in following Christ, being obedient, we give up our idols, or, or we we're on that path of giving those things up. We s- submit. We die to self. We endure various degrees of rejection and. Persecution because of Christ. We may lose relationships and family and friends. Those are high personal costs. That's what Jesus has in mind here. And certainly the apostles are going to experience hard days when, uh, when Jesus dies and is resurrected. But Jesus says that the benefits of being in his kingdom far surpass these costs. He says, truly, I say to you, in other words, there's no exceptions. And then he, it's kind of two categories here. He says in the present age, all these things will happen. There are benefits in this life and being a part of the universal church. It's a hundred times more beneficial than whatever you may give up. Think about the benefits of being in Christ. The things that you have benefited from the benefits of Christian fellowship, the benefits of being shepherded and having your heart guided and directed by God's people and and leaders, by benefiting from the teaching of God's word, from serving others and from others serving you, from the care of God's people. Folks, the, the family of God is our real family. And you guys know this. There's a special love that we have that, You don't share with unsaved, even family members. We benefit from seeing spiritual fruit and growth in our lives. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those things. We have fellowship with God in worship and in prayer. We have hope. We see the, the benefits of answered prayer. We're freed from the power of sin. There's a newness of life. We're new creations. We possess the spirit within us. We have fellowship with the spirit. These are all benefits that far surpass any cost. He does say along with persecutions, Christ didn't promise that everything would be easy. That's certainly going to be true for the disciples who become apostles. This is not the message of today's prosperity gospel. That life is all good and that's what God intended in this life. No. But even among such difficulties, we see God's benefits and his provisions. And then he says another category, in the age to come, eternal life. All the above doesn't even begin to include the joys and benefits of heaven where we will experience eternal life. That expression, eternal life, it's, it's, the idea, it's not only looking at the duration of, of life in the sense of eternity, but also the quality. Eternal life. Real life. The best kind of life imaginable. Beyond hu- human comprehension. And it will be forever. The benefits of life in Christ now on the earth as well as what will come in eternity, make the cost of discipleship pale in comparison. That's what Christ is teaching here. And what a contrast compared to the rich young ruler. He he can't see that. He's hoping in the things that he possesses. And he went away disobedient, unbelieving, rejecting what Christ offered. Look at verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The parallel passage in Matthew 19 and 20 make the meaning clear. Jesus there in Matthew tells a parable of hiring workers. Remember, some were hired at the beginning of the day. Others were hired at the end of the day. And how much were they paid? They were all paid the same wage and there were some workers who didn't like that the ones who came early grumbled well we worked hard all day and these came in late only worked a little bit maybe an hour and you're paying them the same they felt cheated well jesus pointed out points out in that parable that no they were they were not treated unfairly they were all given the wages That they were promised. They shouldn't grumble because the landowner in the parable made them equal. In other words, he was equally generous to those who worked fewer hours, the same as those who worked longer hours. The first were treated as the last and the last were treated as the first. That's the point. They were given the same benefits regardless of how long they worked or the conditions under which they worked. Jesus is, is not saying there's not rewards uh, in heaven you know, based on how one lives your life. Scripture does teach that. In the context of talking to, to those here about those who inherit and don't inherit eternal life, Jesus is making the point that the benefits of salvation are the same, regardless of when you come into the kingdom and the manner of one's service. If you come in late or you, versus you come in early, all receive the same benefits of coming into the kingdom. Well, there's some reflections here. First of all, the benefits we receive far surpass what we give up in following Christ. There are difficulties being believers, but the the benefits we receive far surpass anything we ever give up for following Christ. And also by God's grace, every believer gets to enjoy the benefits of eternal life in this life and the life to come, regardless of the duration and manner of one's service to, to him. I was praying this morning with someone who is looking to share the gospel with a birth parent who is on their deathbed and who is an unbeliever. And I was just reminded of the fact that if, if the Holy Spirit does a work of grace in that person's life, they share equally with all the joys and benefits of salvation as one who came to Christ early, even as a child when one was able to comprehend early. Certainly they they would have bypassed many difficulties in life because of not being in Christ. But they will experience all the joys and benefits of heaven. Even even a deathbed experience, even the thief on the cross receives all the, the benefits and joys of eternal life. Well, with that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these wonderful reminders. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel, which is both easy to embrace, yet difficult. Easy in the sense that we contribute nothing. There's no boxes we need to check in terms of merit and effort. But it's something that you have earned totally. It's something you do from beginning to end and you, you even give us the capacity to have grace to, to embrace it. You're the one who regenerates, who does a work in our hearts. So I pray, Lord, if there, there's someone here who doesn't know you, they will they will embrace you with a simple, the kind of saving faith that even a child who's able to comprehend their sinfulness and their guilt before you, and they, they turn away, give away everything and, And in simple, trusting, fearless faith, they come and embrace you. May they do that. But also, the the gospel's hard in that there is a cost, and you teach us that. Lord, help us to continually abandon any affection of the heart that draws our hope, our attention, our focus away from you, whether... There are those here who are unbelievers or even those of us who are believers. We continue to struggle with our flesh. May we continue to grow in serving you with our whole heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.